Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. It's ne- Do you know, it's nearly 20 to 8, so I'm going to be concise. I have in my hand some notes. I have nothing in my hand that goes beyond what you're going to see. So I'm going to stick to my notes. I'm going to be concise, because part of what I want to do tonight is show you a video clip as well, and I want to have time for you to see it. Um, now, I knew very clearly on Thursday that I was supposed to talk about a siege mentality. That was all I had on Thursday. I had a topic. So I followed the little rabbit shell, started having a look and thinking, well, what could we say about it? Started doing a bit of research. Interestingly, there's been something in the news today, hasn't there, about um, a siege. So I'm not going to get into any developed detail or the nuance of it. We're just going to go on a little journey and see where we end up. So the title of my message is When Life is a Pride-Swallowing Siege, because I love that Video clip. Okay, so this is what the siege man mentality is. And this guy's going to come up. I finally found a word to describe the shared feeling of helplessness and defensiveness of a group. There is such a thing as the siege mentality, and that is what it is. It's that shared feeling of helplessness. I've told you I'm not going to elaborate on my slides, so I better not had her. Now, let me give you a bit of um, definition of what a siege is. So a siege is a military blockade of a city or fortress with the intent of conquering by attrition, which means the process of reducing something's strength or effectiveness through sustained attack or pressure if you didn't know what that word meant, or assault. And it derives from sidere, Latin for to sit. Did you know that? Um, Siege warfare is a form of constant, low-intensity conflict characterised by one party holding a strong, static, defensive position. So that's what an actual siege is. Now, it occurs when an attacker encounters a city or fortress that cannot easily be taken by a coup de main, which means a sudden surprise attack, especially one made by an army during war, and refuses to surrender. Siege involves surrounding the target and blocking the reinforcement or escape of troops or provision of supplies, which is known as investment, typically coupled with attempts to reduce the fortifications by means of siege engines, artillery bombardment, mining, or sapping, or the use of deception or treachery to bypass defences. I'll tell you what, you're learning some stuff tonight. Okay, failing a military outcome. Don't you think that's pictures? This next picture is much more emotive, actually. Next one, Robert. Failing a military outcome, sieges can often be decided by starvation, thirst, or disease, which can afflict either the attacker or defender. This form of siege, though, can take many months or even years, depending upon the size of the stores of food the fortified position holds. So now what we're going to do is look very briefly at some key causes of a siege mentality. So that's what a siege is. This is causes of how we can get ourselves in that mindset of feeling under siege. Okay, number one, 
The siege experience can be evoked by the society's leaders for various internal reasons, like a closed-door policy. For example, you could be trying to stop the infection of other ideas from the outside, and this is the sort of mantra, we must keep out other viewpoints, perspectives, cultures. We've got to keep them out. Alternatively, the siege mentality may stem from perceived maltreatment of the society by the world. So it becomes a we must protect ourselves. So one is keep you out, the other is oh, better protect ourselves here. Finally, the siege beliefs may be maintained because of an imprint left by past collective experiences, something that greatly affects the present perception of the world, according to the person where I stole this off of Google. Um, in these cases, societal channels, cultural institutions, and the educational system often support the siege mentality, and therefore it is extremely difficult to change. They become, siege beliefs become master symbols and chosen traumas for society. Now, this is an example to illustrate the point. So it can become that for the Holocaust, doesn't come to just represent one grim event, but become a metaphor for that whole society. As an example, it can become who we are. Now, it's a way of keeping ourselves within walls and then perpetuating them. So let's think of some other examples that I thought of after this. For example, who has decided that men, women have to be a certain size, weight, shape to be acceptable in Western society? Who decided that? At some point, the media, Hollywood, whoever decided this is what beauty is, this is what must be upheld. Now we're all going to live within that wall, and if you're outside of that wall, well, it's somehow not okay. Other one might be um, almost that. I, I actually thought today of that one where the British stiff upper lip. Who decided that that's who the Brits were going to be? Where did that come from? When did we get that wall built round us? It can become actually part of our identity that we pass on to our children. What are the accepted norms? And you can find yourself living within walls that you didn't even know were there because they've just been handed down to us. Okay, are you all right so far? We're going to look at now, I told you I was going to be concise. Am I being concise enough? Now, functions of the siege mentality. So if this is a state of mind, why? There must be a why we want to live in this state of mind. Why would anyone want to adopt that stance? Because it actually fulfills some very important functions, okay? If you live in a place where you've got your walls up around your life, whichever one of those reasons, if you live within walls, this is often why you want to keep your walls. Number one, they permit society members or individuals to define the world in relatively simple and manageable terms. Where there is a threat to their existence, their siege beliefs allow them to avoid ambiguities, so uncertainties, and dichotomize the world through black and white solutions. So you think, I'm in my walls, if I understand my own walls, and I make that okay, and that not okay, I'm going to be able to cope, and I'm going to be able to function. If I step outside of my walls, I might not know what I'm doing, so I'm going to stay in my walls, yeah? Second thing, they allow fast predictability by preparing society members for the worst in their life. Individuals have a need to live in a world in which future can to some extent be predicted. We want to know what's coming. 
And unpredictable events may cause negative psychological reactions, especially if the events are harmful. So in this sense, expectation of negative events prevent disappointment. So you live in a wall, if you live in a wall that says, well, this is what happens, this is what always happens, this is what I know what's going to happen, I'm just going to expect it, somehow or other it's safer than opening yourself up to new possibilities. Number three, they satisfy the society's need for a firm social identity, differentiating it from other groups. So by positioning that society in conflict against the rest of the world, you can clearly demarcate the boundaries between one's own society and other groups. It allows us, as Joel was saying at the start, to separate ourselves. That's what the siege mentality will do. Number four, the beliefs indirectly answer the need for a sense of superiority. The belief that the rest of the world, so you hear people say everyone thinks this, has negative intentions towards the group also implies that the other group is bad. So somehow or other, they're all awful. That must make me not so awful. And finally, siege beliefs help to satisfy the basic need for freedom of action and for self-reliance. It says things like, you're against me anyway, so I might as well just do my own thing. Okay, consequences, really quick. I'm looking at the time, I'm going to need to trim it a bit, but that's all right. Consequences of the siege mentality, really quickly, there's four. They have emotional and behavioural implications for us all that can be very serious. Number one... The threatened society or individual can develop really negative attitudes towards whoever the other has become. Number two, it can become extremely sensitive to any information coming from that other society that might be negative, so it breeds a lack of trust and suspicion. Number three, in a nutshell, is it develops those coping mechanisms and what it will try to do is get others to conform, unite, mobilise in an attempt to almost somehow gather round an, an agreement. And finally, a society may take a course of action without consideration of behavioural codes. It can get you into very extreme behaviours. Now, I've read you all that, but here is my summary. If you are in a siege mentality in an area of your life, these 11 things might be recognisable. Shutting things out, defensive or overly protective, feeling a hostage to your life, operating in or longing for some real certainty, some real clear-cut answers, expecting the worst, feeling separated, belittling your enemy to give you a sense that you're all right, increasingly independent, negative attitudes, lack of trust, suspicions, pressurising others to side with you, trying to control things, extreme behaviours, and that unwillingness to listen to another viewpoint. Now, have a little look at that list. I don't say we're all under siege in every area of our life, but I know in some areas of my life recently, I've been a little bit hovering in some of those. Just feeling a little bit trapped in my own life. I'm bordering on getting into difficulty. Now, I'm not going to read through the next extract, but it's basically a story from the Bible where there's a siege going on and what happens to these people is that they find themselves and their values becoming very distorted. When you're under siege, because your provision is cut off, what the cost of things is driven up. So these people find themselves paying a huge amount of money for what is effectively dove droppings because 
it's become worth something because you're under siege. They also find themselves having a conversation about boiling their own babies to eat them because they're starving hungry. When you're in that state of absolute lockdown, what you value and how you value can become really, really very different. And it's because in that moment, you are just struggling to survive. Now, what I want to show you, I'm going to skip out a few slides, actually, Robert. Will you skip me the next few? What I was going to, and the next one, 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 and the next one. Yeah, that'll do. Now, what, I was gonna, what I've skipped out was that Jose Marino, is that how it's right? Is that how I say it? He's a football manager. And what some coaches do in football is they deliberately introduce a siege mentality to their players. Because what they think is, if our players don't believe that others are against them, they're going to get complacent. So actually, sometimes it is things that coaches, etc., do because they want their team to feel great, but they also want their team to feel under threat to give them a motivation to keep working hard. So that's just an interesting perspective. But the one line that he said was, I will always do, uh, this is what he's found, people will always do more to avoid pain compared to what they will do to experience pleasure. I mean, do you think, does that resonate with you in your life? Do, are, we, are we busy pursuing what's hurting us and what we find difficult? Or are we busy pursuing pleasure in our life in terms of that understanding of the joy and the contentment and the yes I was talking about last week? Now, I'm going to show you now the clip that I wanted to get to. It's about 11 minutes long, and I wanted to show you the whole thing because I think it makes a really interesting point. And rather than me trying to summarize it, I want to show you it. Now, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with every single thing that's being said, but it is really, really interesting. So I'm going to play it. We're going to make some concluding comments around it, and then I'm going to leave you to have a good old think about this stuff tonight. So can you play? the video for me. Thanks, Robert. So I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you're a soldier in the heat of battle. Maybe you're a Roman foot soldier or a medieval archer, or maybe you're a Zulu warrior. Regardless of your time and place, there are some things that are constant. Your adrenaline is elevated, and your actions are stemming from these deeply ingrained reflexes, reflexes rooted in a need to protect yourself and your side and to defeat the enemy. So now I'd like you to imagine playing a very different role, that of the scout. So the scout's job is not to attack or defend. The scout's job is to understand. The scout is the one going out mapping the terrain, uh, identifying potential obstacles. And the scout may hope to learn that, say, there's a bridge in a convenient location across a river. But above all, the scout wants to know what's really there as accurately as possible. And in a, a real, actual army, uh, both the soldier and the scout are essential. But you can also think of each of these roles as uh, a mindset a metaphor for how all of us process information and ideas in our daily lives. And what I'm going to argue today is that having good judgment, making accurate predictions, uh, making good decisions, is mostly about which mindset you're in. So, 
To illustrate these mindsets in action, I'm going to take you back to 19th century France, where this innocuous-looking piece of paper launched one of the biggest political scandals in history. It was discovered in 1894 by officers in the French general staff, and it was torn up in a waste paper basket. But when they pieced it back together, they discovered that someone in their ranks had been selling military secrets to Germany. So they launched a big investigation. And their suspicions quickly converged on this man, Albert Dreyfus. He had a sterling record, no past history of wrongdoing, no motive, as far as they could tell. But Dreyfus was the only Jewish officer at that rank in the army,、uh, and unfortunately, at this time, the French army was、uh, highly anti-Semitic. So they compared Dreyfus's handwriting to that on the memo and concluded that it was a match. Uh, even though outside professional handwriting experts were much less confident in the similarity, but never mind that, they went and searched Dreyfus's apartment, looking for any signs of espionage. They went through his files, and they didn't find anything. And this just convinced them more that Dreyfus was not only guilty but sneaky as well, because clearly he had hidden all of the evidence before they had managed to get to it. Next, they went and looked through his personal history for any incriminating details. They talked to his teachers. They found that he had studied foreign languages in school,、uh, which clearly showed a desire to conspire with foreign governments in, later in life.、Uh, his teachers also said that Dreyfus had a good memory.、Um, you know, known for having a good memory, which was highly suspicious, right? You know, because a spy has to remember a lot of things. So the case went to trial, and Dreyfus was found guilty.、Uh, and afterwards, they took him out into this public square. And ritualistically tore his insignia from his uniform and broke his sword in two. This was called the degradation of Dreyfus. And they sentenced him to life imprisonment on the aptly named Devil's Island, which is this barren rock off the coast of South America. So there he went,、uh, and there he spent his days alone, writing letters and letters to the French government, begging them to reopen his case so they could discover his innocence. But for the most part, France considered the matter closed. So, one thing that's really interesting to me about the Dreyfus affair is this question of why the officers were so convinced that Dreyfus was guilty. I mean, you might even assume that that they were setting him up, that they were intentionally framing him.、Uh, but historians don't think that's what happened. As far as we can tell, the officers genuinely believed that the case against Dreyfus was strong, which, you know, makes you wonder. <laughs> What does it say about the human mind that we can find such paltry evidence to be compelling enough to convict a man? Well, this is a case of what scientists call motivated reasoning. It's this phenomenon in which our unconscious motivations, our desires and fears, shape the way we interpret information. So, some information, some ideas, feel like our allies, and we want we want them to win. We want to defend them. And other information or ideas are the enemy, and we want to shoot them down. So、uh, this is why I call motivated reasoning soldier mindset. And probably most of you have never persecuted a French Jewish officer for high treason, I assume.、Uh, but maybe you've followed sports or politics. So you might have noticed that、uh, when the referee judges that your team committed a foul, for example,、uh, you're highly motivated to find reasons why he's wrong. But if he judges that the other team committed a foul, awesome. That's a good call. Let's not examine it too closely. Um, or maybe you've read an article or a study that examined some controversial policy, like capital punishment. 
And as researchers have demonstrated, if, if you support capital punishment and the study shows that it's not effective, um, then you're highly motivated to find all the reasons uh, why the study was poorly designed. But if it shows that capital punishment works, awesome, it's a good study. And vice versa, if you don't support capital punishment, same thing. Um, our judgment is just strongly influenced unconsciously by which side we want to win. And this is ubiquitous. This shapes how we think about our health, um, our relationships, how we decide how to vote, um, what we consider fair or ethical. And what's most scary to me about motivated reasoning or soldier mindset is how unconscious it is. You know, we can think we're being objective and fair-minded and still wind up ruining the life of an innocent man. However, fortunately for Dreyfus, his story is not over. This is Colonel Picard. He is another high-ranking officer in the French army, and like most people, he assumed Dreyfus was guilty. Also, like most people in the army, he was at least casually anti-Semitic. But at a certain point, Picard began to suspect, oh, what if we are all wrong about Dreyfus? And what happened was that he had discovered evidence that the spying for Germany had continued even after Dreyfus was in prison. And he had also discovered that another officer in the army had handwriting that perfectly matched the memo, much closer than Dreyfus's handwriting. So he brought these discoveries to his superiors, uh, but to, to his dismay, they either didn't care or came up with elaborate rationalizations to explain his findings, like, uh, well, all you've really shown, Picard, is that there's another spy who, who learned how to mimic Dreyfus's handwriting, and, and he you know, picked up the torch of spying after Dreyfus left. But Dreyfus is still guilty. Eventually, Picard managed to get Dreyfus exonerated, but it took him 10 years, and for part of that time, he himself was in prison for the crime of disloyalty to the army. So, you know, a lot of people feel like Picard can't really be the hero of this story because he was an anti-Semite, and that's bad, which I agree with. But personally, for me, the fact that Picard was anti-Semitic actually makes his actions more admirable because he had the same prejudices, the same reasons to be biased as his fellow officers, but his motivation to find the truth and uphold it just trumped all of that. Uh, so to me, Picard is a poster child for what I call scout mindset. It's the drive not to make one idea win or another lose, but just to see what's really there as, as honestly and accurately as you can, even if it's not pretty or convenient or pleasant. And this mindset is what I'm personally passionate about um, and what I've spent the last few years uh, examining and, and trying to figure out what causes scout mindset. You know, why are some people, sometimes at least, able to cut through their own prejudices and biases and motivations and just try to see the facts and the evidence as objectively as they can? Uh, and the answer is emotional. So just as soldier mindset is rooted in emotions like defensiveness or tribalism, scout mindset is too. It's just rooted in different emotions. So for example, scouts are curious. They're more likely to say that they feel pleasure when they learn new information or an itch to solve a puzzle. Um, they're more likely to feel intrigued when they encounter something that, that contradicts their expectations. Scouts also have different values. They're more likely to say that uh, they think it's virtuous to test your own beliefs, and they're less likely to say that someone who changes his mind seems weak. And above all, scouts are grounded, which means that 
their self-worth as a person isn't tied to how right or wrong they are about any particular topic. So, you know, they can believe that capital punishment works, and if studies come out showing that it doesn't, they can say, huh, looks like I might be wrong. Doesn't mean I'm bad or stupid, you know? So these traits, this cluster of traits, is what researchers have found, uh, and I've also found anecdotally, predicts good judgment. And the key takeaway I want to leave you with about those traits is that they're primarily not about how smart you are or about how much you know. Um, in fact, they don't correlate very much with IQ at all. Um, they're about how you feel. So there's a quote that I keep coming back to by Saint Exupéry. He's the author of The Little Prince. And he said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up your men to collect wood and, and give orders and distribute the work. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. In other words, I claim, if we want to really improve our judgment as, as individuals and as societies, what we need most is not more instruction in logic or rhetoric or probability or economics, even though those things are quite valuable. Um, but what we most need to use those principles well is scout mindset. We need to change the way we feel. We need to learn how to feel proud instead of ashamed when we notice we might have been wrong about something. We need to learn how to feel intrigued instead of defensive when we encounter some information that contradicts uh, our beliefs. So the question I want to leave you with is, what do you most yearn for? Do you yearn to defend your own beliefs? Or do you yearn to see the world as clearly as you possibly can? Thank you. Now, I showed you that because I really found it very, very fascinating. And I'm going to let it speak for itself and let you think about it. But the three reflections that I want us to have tonight is this idea of do we use motivational reasoning to keep our version of the story intact, even when it's not the whole truth? Do we set ourselves up behind our walls and then that is the only version of a story we can see. And I think we are all probably doing that more than we perhaps realise. And are we open to take a view that seeks to understand, not defend what we want to be true? Will we begin to tear down some walls? Because for as long as we live behind our walls, those walls will be things that we have to defend. They'll be what we use to categorise. They'll be what we use to include or escort exclude, will we tear down some walls? Now, some of you I know tonight might feel besieged yourself. You might be feeling that you're somehow trapped in a situation or in life. Um, and the recommendation that I took away from that video was that if we're a soldier, um, we're going to be looking to keep others out, keep ourselves protected, um, accepting that, well, this is just the way it is, and this is just what I've got to do. And if the danger for me is that the worthless things become valuable and decisions are made that you can't necessarily take back. And in that Bible story, I refused to. One of the women killed her son. She didn't have anything. She was starving, hungry. She made an agreement with another woman that they were going to kill both their babies. She killed her son. And to me, that was symbolic of sometimes when we're in these places, we can affect our future because we've lived behind those walls. And so we're going to have to be willing to understand and come to some genuine understanding where we 
become as open as we can to perhaps the possibility that what we have believed to be absolutely right, that there's more to the story than that. Now, that can involve some really quite um, interesting conversations. So I'm just going to play you this short clip as well, because I also love this one. I have a question for you. Are we really friends? Why not? I mean, because friends can tell each other anything if we have our friends' hats on, right? Yeah, I think so. All right. I'll tell you why you don't have your $10 million yet. Right now, you are a paycheck player. You play with your head, not your heart. Your personal life, heart. But when you get on the field, it's all about what you didn't get, who's to blame, who underthrew the pass, who's got the contract you don't, who's not giving you your love. You know what? That is not what inspires people. That is not what inspires people. Just shut up. Play the game. Play it from your heart. And you know what? I will show you the quant. And that's the truth, man. That's the truth. Can you handle it? It's just a question between friends. You know? Oh, and when they call you shrimp, I'm the one who defends you. I want to be friends no more. Fine. And quit using that word, quant. That's my word. I'll see you in L.A. No heart. No heart? I'm all heart. Okay. Now, I love what Joel said at the start about let's reason together because what happens is when we start to tear down some walls, we very quickly get to the point where we start to reason it out with someone where you think, I don't want to be friends anymore. You're telling me things that I don't like the sound of. We've got to be willing to have the conversation. And I just wanted to read something to close that we have heard a number of times, but I really wanted to read it to you again. Um, and that is about the difference between a pioneer and a settler. Now, a settler has walls. A settler builds walls, and they make sure that those walls stay well and truly intact. A pioneer is about saying, I'm not going to settle behind any walls. I'm just going to go and travel and, and see where I need to be on this great pilgrimage that we've set off on. So I'm going to read it to you again. If you've heard it before, let it add another layer of understanding, and if it's new, then I hope you enjoy it. There are two visions of life, two kinds of people. The first see life as a possession to be carefully guarded. They are called settlers. The second see life as a wild, fantastic, explosive gift. They are called pioneers. These two types give rise to two kinds of theology, settler theology and pioneer theology. According to this book, the first kind, settler theology, is an attempt to answer all the questions, you're black and white, define and housebreak some sort of supreme being, establish the status quo on golden tablets, sounds like walls to me, um, pioneer theology is an attempt to talk about what it means to receive the strange gift of life. The Wild West is the setting for both theologies. In settler theology, the church is the courthouse. It is the centre of town life. The old stone structure dominates the town square. Its walls are small and this makes things dark inside. Within the courthouse walls, records are kept, taxes collected, trials held for bad guys. The courthouse is the settler's symbol of law, order, stability and most important, security. The mayor's office is on the top floor. His eagle eye ferrets out the smallest details of town life. 
In pioneer theology, the church is the covered wagon. It's a house on wheels, always on the move. The covered wagon is where the pioneers eat, sleep, fight, love and die. It bears the marks of life and movement. It creaks, is scarred with arrows, bandaged with baling wire. The covered wagon is always where the action is. It moves towards the future and doesn't bother to glorify its own ruts. The old wagon isn't comfortable, but the pioneers don't mind. They are more into adventure than comfort. In settler theology, God is the mayor. He is a sight to behold. Dressed like a dude from back east, he lounges in an overstuffed chair in his courthouse office. He keeps the blinds drawn. No one sees him or knows him directly, but since there is order in the town, who can deny that he is there? The mayor is predictable and always on schedule. The settlers fear the mayor, but look to him to clear the payroll and keep things going. Peace and quiet are the mayor's main concerns. That's why he sends the sheriff to check on pioneers who ride into town. In pioneer theology, God is the trail boss. He is rough and rugged, full of life. He chews tobacco, drinks straight whiskey. The trail boss lives, eats, sleeps, fights with the people. Their well-being is his concern. Without him, the wagon wouldn't move. Living as a free man would be impossible. The trail boss often gets down in the mud with the pioneers to help push the wagon, which often gets stuck. He prods the pioneers when they get soft and want to turn back. His fist is an expression of his concern. In settler theology, Jesus is the sheriff. He's the guy who was sent by the mayor to enforce the rules. He wears a white hat, drinks milk, outdraws the bad guys. The sheriff decides who is thrown into jail. There is a saying in town that goes, those who believe that the mayor sent the sheriff and follow the rules, they won't stay in Boot Hill when it comes their time. In pioneer theology, Jesus is the scout what made me think of it. He rides out ahead to find out which way the pioneers should go. He lives all the dangers of the trail. The scout suffers every hardship, is attacked by the Indians. Through his words and actions, he reveals the true intentions of the trail boss. By looking at the scout, those on the trail learn what it means to be a pioneer. In settler theology, the Holy Spirit is the saloon girl. Her job is to comfort the settlers. They come to her when they feel lonely or when life gets dull or dangerous. She tickles them under the chin and makes everything okay again. The saloon girl squeals to the sheriff when someone starts disturbing the peace. In pioneer theology, the Holy Spirit is the buffalo hunter. He rides along with the covered wagon, furnishes fresh meat for the pioneers. Without it, they would die. The buffalo hunter is a strange character, sort of a wild man. The pioneers never can tell what he'll do next. He scares the hell out of the settlers. He has a big black gun that goes off like a cannon. He rides into town on Sunday to shake up the settlers. You see, every Sunday morning, the settlers have a nice little ice cream party in the courthouse. With his gun in hand and Buffalo Hunter sneaks up to one of the courthouse windows, he fires a tremendous blast that rattles the whole courthouse. Men jump out of their skin, women scream, dogs bark. Chuckling to himself, the Buffalo Hunter rides back to the wagon train, shooting up the town as he goes. In settler theology, the Christian is the settler. He fears, the only, he fears the open, unknown frontier. His concern is to stay in good terms with the mayor and keep out of the sheriff's way. Safety first is his motto. To him, the courthouse is a symbol of peace, security, order and happiness. He keeps his money in the bank. The banker is his best friend. The settler never misses an ice cream party. In pioneer theology, the Christian is the pioneer. He is a man of daring, hungry for new life. He rides hard and knows how to use a gun when necessary. The pioneer feels sorry for the settlers and tries to tell them of the joy and fulfillment of life on the trail. He dies with his boots on. That line. In settler theology, the clergyman is the banker. Within his vault are locked the values of the town. He is a highly respected man. He has a gun but keeps it hidden in his desk. He feels that he and the sheriff have a lot in common. After all, they both protect the bank. 
In pioneer theology, the clergyman is the cook. He doesn't furnish the, the meat. He just dishes up what the buffalo hunter provides. This is how he supports the movement of the wagon. He never confuses his job with that of the trail boss, scout, or buffalo hunter. He sees himself as just another pioneer who has learned to cook. The cook's job is to help the pioneers pioneer. In settler theology, faith is trusting in the safety of the town, obeying the laws, keeping your nose clean, believing the mayor is in the courthouse. In pioneer theology, faith is the spirit of adventure, the readiness to move out, to risk everything on the trail. Faith is obedience to the restless voice of the trail boss. In settler theology, sin is breaking one of the town's ordinances. In pioneer theology, sin is wanting to turn back. In settler theology, salvation is living close to home and hanging around the courthouse. In pioneer theology, salvation is being more afraid of sterile town life than of death on the trail. Salvation is joy at the thought of another day to push on into the unknown. It is trusting the trail boss and following his scout while living on the meat provided by the buffalo hunter. <gasps> I love that. That is on our website. That's part of who we are because we do not want to be a place with walls, walls that we all live behind, walls that we all hold to. Um, and I guess my challenge to you tonight is if you know that you have some walls in your life, I'm asking you to open your heart to the possibility that they could come down. And the recommendation that I'm giving you tonight is that part of that process is that you seek to understand not try to uphold what you want to be true. And that takes some lowering of your defenses, some really honest conversation where you genuinely are open to reasoning it out. And uh, exactly, we've come full circle, exactly what Joel said at the beginning, that that willingness that we're just going to all come at it from the perspective of we all want the same outcome. So I'm going to leave it. I'm going to pray. Um, and I'm going to believe that I, I, I knew today that you're going to have you're going to have heard stuff that I've not said because it's spoken to you in here. And I'm absolutely trusting that that's not my job. I've just cooked up something and given it to you. And I'm going to leave um, the rest in the right hands. So let's pray together. Um, and let's just say thank you so much that there is an opportunity tonight to have our eyes open to where there may be walls in our life to really recognize that we might have put those walls up for all sorts of reasons and um, that may be having implications that are entirely unhelpful. And Lord, I trust tonight that you will highlight those areas for people and that there will be a willingness to be a scout, not a soldier defending our territory, that we will embrace the fact that we are all human beings on a journey together at one with you. And so our walls are not required for a fulfilled life. And, and I trust tonight that there'll be an inspiring to be a pioneer, not a settler, to go somewhere not stay within walls that we may not even know where they came from and just do a great work in our heart tonight Lord I trust thank you for these people thank you Lord for everything you're doing for us um, and keep us pioneering with you amen thank you thank you um. thanks for listening you might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.